We're going to continue with our series, Ephesians, Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. Turn to chapter 1. Today we're looking at verses 15 through to 23. Up until now we've looked at the first 14 verses in chapter 1 of Ephesians. And before we move on, and by way of recap, it's interesting to note that after Paul's salutation, his greeting in the first two verses, what what follows is in verse 3 through to 14, is one big sentence. And it is a sentence that speaks of various spiritual blessings in Christ. And I say it's good to recap this because it really does um, serve as a springboard to what we're going to be looking at today. So we have all spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. And they've all enumerated for us, well not all of them, some of those blessings are enumerated in that very big sentence, verse 3 through to verse 14. Blessings such as being chosen, that is all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. That's something, isn't it? You have some kind of notion that you chose Christ Now, praise God for that, but you chose Christ. Uh, In other words, you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ because God chose you before he even said, let there be light. The first first verses there that we've already looked at speak of being predestinated, predestined to be adopted as children of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, there's redemption or forgiveness of sins with the precious blood of Jesus being the ransom price that was paid. The recipients of those blessings are accepted before God in his beloved Son. In other words, they stand before God draped and adorned in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. To such people, God has graciously given knowledge and understanding of spiritual things. I, I, I often like to look at the flip side of these things. So, you, having received all spiritual blessings through faith in Jesus, you have knowledge and understanding of spiritual things. The flip side is, if you do not believe to Jesus, you understand nothing about spiritual things. And last of all, we saw that all who are in Christ are sealed with God the Holy Spirit who is the earnest or the deposit of their heavenly inheritance. Some wonderful blessings in those first verses there. A lot to think about and a lot to praise God for. Suffice to say that verses 3 through to 14 is a sentence that is crammed from start to finish, with details of spiritual blessings according to the riches of God's grace and which have their yea and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. Putting it very simply, if you are trusting in the incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ as a repentant sinner, you have all spiritual blessings right now and in the life to come. Again, On the flip side, 
If you are not trusting in Jesus as your saviour from sin, you have nothing now and in the life to come you will have nothing but eternal torment in hellfire. I think I was clear enough then, wasn't I? It gives me no pleasure to tell you, to tell anyone those things, but it gives me great pleasure to tell you that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now that whosoever is that someone here who has not thus far uh, trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you the elect of God? That whosoever is a wonderful word, isn't it? Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Praise God for that. Moving on to today's passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through to 23, we shall be looking at a prayer of the Apostle Paul for the Ephesian Christians. Looking again at verse 15 and 16. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul started verse 15 with the word wherefore or therefore or for this cause. means the same thing. In other words, what he was about to say was on account of all of those Christian blessings that he had enumerated and which belonged to the Ephesian Christians and beyond that to all who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, to people in here today who have those spiritual blessings and let's, it should be of great interest to us to see what Paul was praying without ceasing to God for such people. They had much to give thanks to God for and also Paul gave thanks for them. In fact, ever since, ever since hearing about their faith and their love for the saints, he never stopped giving thanks to God for them. He never stopped. You might have thought that Paul would already have known about the faith and the love of the Ephesians and he didn't need to hear about it. Because uh, Let's have a look at that again. Uh, verse 16 and 17 that he sees Paul says I, I cease not to give thanks for you making mention of you in my prayer that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of glory may give unto you the spirit of wisdom in the knowledge of him sorry verse 15 wherefore I also after I heard of your faith Paul heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and love unto all the saints Love for the brethren. Paul's heard about that love and that faith. That's what I wanted to highlight there. You might have thought that Paul would already have known about that faith and that love of the Ephesians and that he didn't need to hear about that. And why is that? Well, after all, he had stayed in Ephesus for three years. Three years, according to Acts chapter 20. And verse 31. However, 
The situation in all churches, whether back then or now, is subject to change. And boy, don't we know it. It's subject to change and the fact is that what what were once Christ-honouring churches can and do apostatise. They can and they do lose their focus, which ought to be on Jesus. Sad to say that this is what would eventually happen at Ephesus. For example, in Revelation chapter 2, verses 2 through to 5, Jesus said of that church, I know thy works and thy labour and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars and hast borne and has patience and for my name's sake has laboured and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen and repent and do the first works or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place except thou repent. And even as I'm reading this now I'm thinking where is Ephesus? Isn't that in Turkey? probably went close to there when I went on holiday to Turkey a few years ago. Turkey, Muslim Turkey. The church there lost its first love, left its first love. Who is that first love? Jesus, isn't it? Jesus. They left their first love and Jesus said, I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of this place, except thou repent. Isn't that a message for today? Surely it is. On a positive note, the Ephesians identified the false prophets who were among them. They were identified by their lies, which is better than certain churches nowadays are doing. For example, we actually have a false apostle heading some churches on this island. As for the Roman Catholic Church, that too is headed by a false apostle. Also, many false teachers have infiltrated churches far and wide and they preach a false gospel. But negatively, the Ephesians had lost their first love, which is a love for Jesus That will inevitably happen if people are hearing a gospel that is not about the incarnate Son of God, dying for the sins of all who are trusting in him, being buried and rising on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And that's not being preached in churches. You you would have thought, well, we all know that is the gospel message. And yet it is not being preached. Only the other day I was listening to um, a vicaress as she was TikToking on, on television. She was telling us what she's going to be saying on Christmas Day. And it's about Jesus, because he was born in a manger, he knows what we're going through. And it was a word of, it, she was giving words of comfort to the ungodly. Jesus will just wrap his arms around you. 
because he knows what you're going through. Nothing, no mention about repentance, crying up to heaven for mercy to the God who sent his son into the world to suffer, to bleed, to die on a cross for sinners and who was raised up again on the third day and who is now highly exalted and seated at the right hand of the throne of God and who is coming again in judgment. I wonder if she's mentioned anything about any of that. I shouldn't imagine she did. But I'm sure she's not the only one. That is missing from many churches now. At least at the time that Paul wrote his epistle to the Ephesians from his place of imprisonment in Rome, the Ephesians still had both faith and love for one another. In in verse 15 there, that is so important, that faith and that love. Those two graces are inseparable. A saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is seen in a love for the brethren. And by that I mean a practical love and not just a few kind words with a nice warm Christian smile, as nice as those things undoubtedly are. There needs to be more. I'm not saying that you must do this, you must do that. But a a genuine saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is seen in fruit. And that fruit is, is, uh, is visible in a love, a practical love for the brethren. People who, like yourselves, um, have been washed in the blood of Jesus and clothed with his righteousness. Without that love, any, any profession of faith is meaningless. It's ridiculous. 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1 brings together faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and a love for God which is seen in a love for fellow Christians. With regards faith in Jesus, John said in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 1, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. He then spoke about the love of those born again Christians who have faith in Jesus, when he said, And everyone that loveth him that begat, in, ev- in other words, Anyone who loves God, he is the one who begets. Anyone who loves God, loveth also him that is begotten of him. Those people also love other born-again Christians. You have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then you show your love for God in your love for other Christians. It, It really is as simple as that. Now we come to the actual prayer of Paul for the Ephesians. Look at verse 17. That the God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. First of all, we see that Paul prayed to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. That's a lovely way to start a prayer, isn't it? Praying to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. The God God of our Lord Jesus Christ, well, that speaks of Jesus as, as being a man, doesn't it? And God as being his God. 
God of our Lord Jesus Christ must speak of Jesus being a man and God being his God. And even Jesus called God his God. For example, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, when Jesus was nailed to a cross, he cried with a loud voice, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And after the resurrection of Jesus, when he appeared to Mary Magdalene, he said to her in John chapter 20 and verse 17, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. So that's interesting, isn't it? He, he refers to God as his Father and his God. I wonder what that might mean. Let's, we'll come back to that in a, in a short while. But then looking at verse 17 again here, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, the Father of glory there, there are those who say that Paul, having acknowledged the humanity of Jesus in those first words, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, acknowledging the humanity of Jesus, by then saying the Father of glory, that he is now acknowledging the divinity of Jesus, that Jesus is God, the Father of glory, where Jesus is glory. He is the glory there. So that's what some of the commentators say. I don't really see that. Maybe they're right. Who am I to say? I would certainly acknowledge that Jesus is glorious. And indeed, Psalm 24 refers to him as the King of glory. But I would nevertheless say that the glory spoken of here in verse 17, of which God is the Father, refers to the glory, the majesty, the holy perfections of God the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. With that said, there are verses in the Bible that clearly and overtly proclaim Jesus to be both man and God. And uh, let me just read one to you. It's very handy to know some of these verses. It's good for your own soul and and your own faith to, to have these words indelibly written in your heart and in your mind. You know, verses like, Matthew chapter 16, reading from verse 13. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? In that verse, he refers to himself as the Son of Man, with an emphasis on man there, and he's referring to his humanity. He's calling himself the Son of Man. And they said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou Simon Bar-Jonah, For flesh and blood have not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. There you have it in those verses. Jesus, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. It couldn't be clearer, could it? 
And there are verses in the Bible that really do speak clearly of the humanity of Jesus in isolation of Jesus being God. And there are other verses that speak very clearly of Jesus being God in isolation of him being man. It's good to know all of these verses so that when you get the messengers of, of Satan knocking on your door and they may, they may turn your attention to verses such as verse 17 in Ephesians chapter 1 and they'll show you that and they'll, uh, and they'll highlight the God of our Lord Jesus Christ and they're really uh, bringing home the, the, to you the fact, the fact that Jesus is a man there the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And thus they, they don't really go any further than that because, of course, they reject the divinity of Christ. Now, what, I, what you really ought to be doing if you are Christians is embracing and celebrating the fact that Jesus is a man. And, and what a lovely verse that is, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God for Jesus who is man and he came into this world and you show them from the scriptures that he is also God. That we have a saviour. Those who believe in him have a a genuine saving faith in him. Have a saviour who is man and God. Yeah, let me just say to you, it's important. Now, when I listen to people and they reject the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they claim to be Christians. Those people know nothing of the humility of Jesus. If your Jesus isn't God, who made himself of no reputation, God who came down from heaven and came down into this dark world of sin as a servant. God, who was manifest in the flesh, and then the incarnate gut son of God, subjecting himself to God's law and fulfilling the demands of God's laws for you, and God manifesting manifest in the flesh, being nailed to a wooden cross and being lifted up to die. If your Jesus is not God manifest in the flesh, you know nothing of the humility of Jesus, you know nothing of his humiliation, and quite frankly, you know nothing about the God, uh, uh, about Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity. For me, the, 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 the amazing thing always will be that the one who loved me and who gave himself for me is God manifest in the flesh. How wonderful that is. There's nothing more wonderful than that, surely. That God sent his only begotten son into this world to suffer and bleed and die on a cross for people like us. For hell-deserving sinners. Before we actually consider what Paul prayed for, note 
what he did not pray for. He did not pray for wealth and for good health for the Ephesians. You won't see it anywhere in those verses. Paul praying for their good health and that they would prosper prosper materially in this world. He prayed that God might give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. What a wonderful prayer that is, praying for the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. Surely all true Christians know God though, don't they? Didn't Paul realise that? Why was he praying that? Yeah, look at that in verse 17. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you, he's speaking to Christians here, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Surely all true Christians know God. And if they didn't know God, then they wouldn't be saved from their sins and they would be have no interest, no business addressing God as Father. You in here, as Christians, why do you address God as Father? Because you know him. Why do you have eternal life? Because you know God, the only true God, and you know Jesus Christ, whom he hath sent. It doesn't make sense that you can be a Christian and not know God. Of all the people in the world, it is Christians who know God, who have a saving knowledge of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. No one else does. But also, dear Christian, Paul's prayer for the Ephesians and presumably your prayer for yourself, certainly my prayer for myself, is to have an ever-increasing knowledge of God. An ever-increasing knowledge of God, the God of my salvation as and you pray that for more knowledge of God as you read and you study your Bible and as the Holy Spirit teaches you and that is called sanctification as you grow in knowledge of God as you grow in holiness and as you become more and more like Jesus your Saviour let's have a look at verse 18 the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. People talk about seeing the light or being enlightened, but only people who are in Christ, trusting in him, have seen the light. For Jesus is the light of the world. Jesus said, He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. And the psalmist said, The entrance of thy words giveth light. It giveth understanding unto the simple people like us. Never mind the psalmist. What about each one of you? Is it your prayer that God would light up your heart with a deeper knowledge of himself, a deeper knowledge of God, a deeper understanding of his glory as you read and inwardly digest the word of Christ. If you're a Christian, God has made his light shine in your heart. You've seen the light of the world and you follow that light day by day. 
You are someone who can say, I have seen the light. Do you follow that light day by day as you read the word of God? The entrance of my word giveth light. It gives understanding to the simple. And you read that word and you've... Uh, the, and that you might have a greater appreciation of the hope of his calling or the hope that God has called you to. A hope that is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. That is what it makes, that's what makes a certain hope. It is a hope that reaches to heavenly glory where Jesus is. And Paul said there, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling. And we can lose sight of that, can't we? If we're not reading the scriptures, if we're not meditating upon the word of God, and we lose sight of Jesus. The hope of our calling, it just becomes nothing. We become so caught up in the things of this world, instead of praising God for the hope that he has called us to, a hope that is made certain in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so many other things just seem to get in the way. Paul also prays that they might know the riches of their glorious heavenly inheritance. I'd say that Abraham of old had the eyes of his understanding enlightened to see the glory of his heavenly inheritance. His focus was on Christ. We can be sure about that. Even though he was in the world 2,000 years before the word was made flesh. After all, he and others confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims in the earth. He looked for a city which have foundations, whose builder and maker is God. What about you, each one of you here? Do you look for and long for the same? A heavenly city, a city that is not made with human hands. Let's have a look at verse 19 and 20. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us, Ward, who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he have wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Those verses, it's the, the power that's raised us up who believe in Jesus. It's the same power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ up. And Paul is praying that the Ephesians might know that power of God. A power that raised them up when they were dead in their sins. And that applies equally to each one of you who is in Christ Jesus. Dear Christian, do you understand something of the immensity of the power of God that raised you up to spiritual life when you were dead in your sins? And you were without hope. 
as you consider the death of Jesus as he bear away your sins and as you consider his resurrection and his ascension, think also that by the grace of God and by his power, you have been raised up to newness of life in Jesus. Furthermore, you can be sure that the work that God started in you when he raised you up from spiritual death will be completed when you die and when you go to be where Jesus now is. We'll finish by considering the highly exalted Jesus who having paid the price for sin is now seated where no one else is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Look at verses 21 through to 23. Far above all principality and power, this is Jesus, far above all principality and power, and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and have put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, that filleth all things. What is being described in verse 21 there, principality, power, might and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which is to come. All of that is said by the commentators to refer to anything and everything from earthly rulers to heavenly angels, good angels and evil angels alike. Suffice to say that the man who is God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is far above all created things. Having made himself of no reputation and having paid the price for sins of the elect of God, God has highly exalted him and given him all power in heaven and in earth. Everything is in complete subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is under his feet, the feet that were once pierced by wicked men. Consequently, the Lord Jesus Christ is working everything out for the good of his church, which is his body and which he has purchased with his own precious blood. It's a tremendous comfort to me that what appears to me to be a world that is spiralling out of control. Jesus is nevertheless working all things out for the good of his church. He is in control, the one to whom all power is given in heaven and in earth. He is in control of everything for the good of his church. So much so that when he comes again, in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory to gather together his elect, not one of them shall be missing. And that is despite every effort of the devil and of this world of which the devil is prince to destroy the church. When you think of all that's going on in this world, the bad things that are going on, you, if, you, if you wise up as a Christian, you'll realise that ultimately all the stuff that's going on in this world is an attack on the church, ultimately. I I trust you realise that. Think about it. Who's the prince of this world? The devil. The world 
does the lusts of its father who is a liar and a murderer. The world does the lusts of the prince of this world, the devil. He's got them. He's taking them to hell with him, to the lake of fire. The devil will be cast into the fire and all who belong to him will join him there. So ultimately, all the, ta- all the attacks in this world, all the evil that is going on, is an attack on the church and ultimately on Christ. But Jesus says, I have overcome the world and all power is given to him, all power in heaven and in the earth. The fact of the matter is that with the Lord Jesus Christ being given power over all things, there is nothing that can separate from the love of God all who have shown repentance towards God and faith in his dear Son. I'll close with some verses from Psalm 2. I read Psalm 2 to you earlier. Some verses which, amongst other things, speak of the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, his power over all things. There's a severe warning to earthly rulers and a very solemn call to people to repent and to believe in Jesus. And this is what we have from Psalm 2. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This, of course, is speaking of the ungodly, those who are not trusting in Christ. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and ye perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Amen.